Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Father God, thank you for the reminder that we don't have to fear. We saw it in a children's story. We heard it from Beverly. Indeed, uh, you are a rock and our foundation. There's nothing to fear when you are by our side. Oh Lord, we know that there is power in your word and that you have something to tell us this morning. Help us to look at you and to listen to this word with our hearts hoping because it comes from you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Pastor Charles Swindle, some of you may have heard of him. He's an evangelical Christian pastor. He tells a story about a time when him and his wife, Cynthia, were on a flight from uh, Portland to Los Angeles after a pastor's conference. And after the, the, the plane had reached cruising altitude, the, um, you know, the flight attendants, they began uh, to serve the meal. You know, they began to serve the meal, and, and uh, as they were doing this, the, the plane banked sharply. So the flight attendants quickly put away all the food and even took the trays from the people that they had given them to. And then they go to, to a corner and start whispering to each other. You see something like that, you say, oh, something's happening here. And Pastor Swindle knew there's trouble coming. And shortly after that, uh, the pilot comes through the intercom and said, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You know how it, how, how it always sounds on, on the plane. We're having a little mechanical difficulty. We're going to drop back down to the Portland airport. We're going to be there for a little while, and then we will, um, you know, be back on course. As soon as the plane touched down, the flight attendant said, listen very carefully, everyone. As soon as we come to the stop, you're going to hear a sound. A bell is going to ring, and at that moment, take the closest escape you can. Some of you will go through the front, others will go through the tail. You may even have to use that slide. And as the plane pulled to a stop, she added, there's a bomb threat. Take nothing with you and get off. And imagine how would you feel in that situation. Pastor Swindle asks a question interesting. He says, would you believe that people stop to open the overhead bin? Is this your bag? Is this your suitcase? Is this your briefcase? We were supposed to get out. The flight attendant said uh, that it's a bomb threat. Ladies and gentlemen, get off the plane. And even then, they were grabbing their stuff under their, their seats because they didn't want to leave without it. And it's funny how some people don't take warnings seriously. You know, we have been seeing warnings all for many years now, clearly. I mean, we know that, you know, we've been preaching uh, that Jesus is coming soon for, for a long time now. Signs of the times being proclaimed everywhere. We see it everywhere. The warning lights, you know, you think about those lights from the ambulances, they're they're going off everywhere. And it's certainly true this past year, warnings are going everywhere. Could it be that 
We have gotten so used to living in a time with lights and sirens everywhere that we're not paying attention anymore. That we become comfortable. That we have become content. Reminds me of the words of of Jesus in Matthew 24. He says that uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be when at the coming of the Son of Man. And what uh, he, the implication there in Matthew 24, they were eating and drinking and, marrying and, mar- and giving in marriage, is that they were living life as usual. They were living life normally, like nothing's happening. There are sirens and lights going all over the place, and they were content. Nothing's happening here. We have everything we need and some of the things we want. I wonder if you think people are feeling content today. You know, we've been, uh, as Hamilton pointed out, the first Sabbath of the month of March last year was the last Sabbath that this church met as a body. That was the last Sabbath. In fact, I remember because if, uh, um, I wasn't here that day because you remember we had those tornadoes uh, in March the 3rd, and so Lucy and I went out to uh, Mount Juliet to help out with uh, some of the tornado relief. And I know that uh, we had a children's program here. The children had the worship service. That was the last Sabbath that we had worship service as a church one year ago. Do you think, could it be, that after a year we have become comfortable living in the COVID-19 era? Have we become content? Again, we have everything we need, some of the things we want. There's no need to change. There is nothing to see here. In his book, The The Root of Righteousness, A.W. Tozer, pastor and theologian, said that contentment with earthly goods is a mark of a saint. Contentment with our spiritual state is a mark of inward blindness. One of the greatest foes of the Christian is religious complacency. Let me read that again, that last part. One of the greatest foes of the Christian is religious complacency. You may say, well, what is complacency? Well, if we were to look at Webster's, Webster's defines complacency as self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Sort of like what was happening in the plane there with Charles Swindle. It doesn't matter what the danger was, people were comfortable, complacent. We could also define complacency as a state of apathy, a state of indifference. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this issue of complacency is a characteristic of God's last-day church. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation. Our scripture reading was Revelation 3.20. We're going to read, start reading from verses 14 through 19. That is Revelation chapter 3 and verses 14 through 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Revelation 14, uh, Revelation chapter 3, I should say. Revelation 3 verses 14 
through 19. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined into fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, I, re- I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, the message to uh, this message that we just read is part of what is known as the seven messages to the churches of Revelation. You know, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia in Laodicea. Now, uh, these were real churches that existed back in those days in the time of the Apostle John. These are real churches, real people. And so uh, um, the, the things that John writes to them is things that were applicable specifically to these churches, things that they were going through. In fact, these letters were to be read as a whole to all the churches. In fact, even the, the, the book of Revelation you, you, if you were to take the book of Revelation as a long letter, that letter was supposed to be read to all the churches because it applied specifically to some of the things that they were going through in that time, local things. However, uh, scholars, historians, and, and, and the spirit of prophecy agrees with this also, that the, uh, say that the, seven, the messages to the seven churches also outline the, his, the history of the Christian church from the early church in the time of the Apostle John all the way through the second coming of Christ. And, and, and if you were to read them and, and, and study them, it's, it's amazing how, although the, the immediate application to what were, they were going through these churches fits very perfectly, it also fits perfectly in the historical pattern of what these, uh, each uh, pattern in history uh, represented by each of the churches. It fits like glove. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Now, we're not going to go through each of the seven churches today because, of course, that would take too long. But today I want to focus on the last church, the last church that describes the state of the church, the state of Christianity in the last days. Do you believe we're living in the last days? Are you sure? Yeah, I think all of us, you watching at home, can be sure. We're living in the last days, and as such, then we, uh, we can agree that the church of Laodicea represents Christianity today. It, it represents Christianity today. Now, um, each of these churches, the seven churches, it's important to mention that uh, uh, they don't necessarily represent, in the history, denominations in particular. Right? It, it, it's just a history of Christianity all the way to the second coming of Jesus. 
And so as such, the church of Laodicea represents uh, the, the, the history or, or the state of Christianity today. But more specifically, and as we'll see here in a little bit, the spirit of prophecy shares this, the church of Laodicea represents us. It represents Adventism in the last days. It represents us today. Now, uh, the, the, the name Laodicea, it, it, it means uh, either the people ruling or the judgment of the people. Now think about that last one. Laodicea, the judgment of the people. I find it very interesting that the church that describes the, the, the state of Adventism, Christianity in the last days, is the church that, that exists while the judgment is going on. We know that the pre-Advent judgment, the investigative judgment, started in 1844. And so as we speak, this judgment is going on, the judgment of the people. And Jesus starts his message by saying the following, verse 14. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so Jesus goes on to basically identify himself, describe himself, give certain attributes. He is the embodiment of, of faithfulness and truth. He is the one who guarantees and fulfills the promises of God. He is the origin and the source of creation. And as such, it gives them the right to tell Laodicea what he's about to tell him. Now, if you were to look at the, uh, uh, the, the, the seven letters of the, uh, here in Revelation, you'll find something interesting. When you read the message to the first five churches, you find that God always starts with something positive about the church. He says something positive. He praises the church for some specific reason. And then he goes on to say what the negative things are. You, you, this is positive about you, but you need to work on this. You find that in the first five churches. When we come to the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia, you find uh, things change a little bit. Because in the, church of, the message of the church of Philadelphia has nothing negative to say. Everything is positive. They are doing fantastic. They're doing a good thing. When we come to the last church, the church of Laodicea, you will notice that God has nothing positive to say. It's all negative. They all have, they have, basically you have a problem. And this is why Jesus, uh, I would say, he, he describes his attributes that give him the right to tell it like it is. I'm about to tell you something and you're not going to like it. But I am the true witness. I'm the faithful and true witness. So he describes the problem in verses 15 and 16. I know your works. That you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, in the immediate context of the church of Laodicea, what, what, what you know, Jesus is saying, what John is describing here, is something they actually were dealing with locally. I mean, uh, uh, the church of Laodicea had a water problem. You see, the, 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 the hot water springs were at a distance, and so by the time the water got to the, the area of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was good for nothing. And so in an immediate context, that was applicable to them. But this is talking about a more serious issue. A more serious issue. They had a, a severe spiritual problem. Notice that, that, that the Lord would have preferred either extreme. That they were 
totally indifferent, cold. And I would say that, that, that he, he would have wanted that because if they're cold, maybe they feel their need of something else to warm up. And they may be able to seek the Lord. He would have preferred the other extreme, that they would be zealous for the cause of God, that they would be hot. He would have preferred that. But that's not the reality. It is lukewarm. It is lukewarm enough to deceive people into thinking it is a godly church. It is lukewarm enough to, to deceive people. And this lukewarmness, friends, denotes compromise. This lukewarmness denotes complacency. Complacency. So let me ask you today, is Christianity complacent today? Are Seventh-day Adventists complacent today? Is Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church complacent today? Only you can answer that question. But as you think about this, let me share with you some interesting statistics, some relevant recent statistics that I found to help us think about this. And by the way, these statistics are about Christianity in general. Remember, Laodicea, in, in, in a big sense, in a, in a general sense, is about Christianity in general, even though it does apply to Adventism. Um, so these are about Christianity in general, but you know, we are part of the Christian church today, so it certainly applies to us as well. Notice, less than 10% of sermons preached today in evangelical churches even mention hell, sin, salvation, or heaven. Less than 10%. What is that saying? That, that, that what's happening in, in most churches is that preachers are preaching to satisfy the itching ears. They are preaching to make their audience happy. You know, you've, you've seen it probably out there, right? The, the Joel Olsteins of Christianity. Oh, everything is fine. And a big smile on your face, you know, like a salesman. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be successful. All those things. The sky is pink with polka dots on it. And so those things that matter, those things that God wants us to talk about, oh, well, you know, less than 10% are preaching about those things because, well, we, we don't want to rub people the wrong way. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. It's interesting how this issue of political correctness has come into the pulpit. And so less than 10% of churches are preaching really what God ought, ought, would have us to preach. That's a sad state of affairs, my friend. This is what's happening today. And it would be interesting to, and by the way, I, I would say that if this was a, a percentage that was done within Adventism alone, I, I would submit that the percentage would be higher. Uh, I remember, you know, one of the things I, in the conversations I have with people uh, when we have evangelistic meetings is that they don't hear the things that we preach in their churches. So obviously, we're, we're preaching a lot more about these things than than the average, you know, evangelical Christian, uh, Christian church. But still, it would be interesting to, you know, maybe do a, a research and go to see Adventist churches and see what's being proclaimed. Here's another one. 92% of 
of churchgoers say that they don't plan to attend church more often after the coronavirus pandemic is over than they did before the pandemic began. 92%. You would think that, that after such a long period of not having church, that, that people would you know, say, you know, I, I really miss this. I really want to, to be there more often and, and decide, you know, I'm going to make a change. But 92% say, no, I'm not changing anything. Now, now, now by the way, this, this, does, this is not talking about those that come to church every, every week. Every, every Sunday, if you're a Christian, uh, you know, evangelical Christian, but in, in our case, every Sabbath. It's not talking about those. It's talking about those that don't come to church every week, that they may come to church maybe twice a month or maybe once a month. This is what this is talking about, okay? And 92% of them say, we're not going to change that after uh, coronavirus is over. Now, I was reading, uh, this was a, f- a few months ago, there's an article, I believe, in Adventist Today, uh, about something that was done within an Adventist church. And, and in their research, they found that about 30% of these people, we're talking about those that don't come to church every Sabbath, that about 30% of them will not return to church again after coronavirus is over. 30% of them we will lose permanently. This is what the research has found. Do you think we become complacent? Absolutely. Only 12%, this is another one, the 12% of young people, ages 18 through 24, identify as evangelical Christians, which is less than half the normal, the national average. So um, young adults we're talking about here, for some reason, don't want to be identified with the faith maybe that they've grown up with. Now, you may, there may be different reasons for this, but, you know, I, I, I think that's not a, a positive thing. Here's another one. There, are five, there were five times more web searches conducted for end times in March of 2020 compared to any other month since Google began collecting data more than 15 years ago. However, by the last week of September, interest in end times searches faded to pre-COVID levels. So when this happened, you know, a year ago, you know, all the changes happening around us, well, you know, the, the businesses are closing and, 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 and people are losing their jobs, churches are closing, people were like, something's happening in this world, oh my God, could it be the end of the world? And so people were interested in, in let, let's look up, let, let's, let's see what the Bible says, let's see what's out there, maybe we need to prepare for something. But as the time went by... People, again, have gotten used to and comfortable with COVID-19. Nothing to see here. It's like, um, if you remember, back in, those of you who can remember this, I know some of you young people can't remember this, which, which, Erica, means that I'm aging myself. (laughs) But in September 11, 2001, after the terrorist attacks, you may remember that afterwards, churches were packed. They were standing room only. After, after 9-11, because, oh, something was happening. We were attacked. Uh, we need to prepare. But as the months went by, nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. I, I, I think I shared with you this a uh, uh, few months ago. Um, about, I think it was mid, mid to late March of last year, after the, the pandemic started. I got a phone call from a guy that 
that I knew that from my previous district that, uh, you know, saw, uh, you know, we had studied briefly uh, before and evangelistic meetings, but he wasn't ready yet. And so, you know, we, I moved on, and, and, but you know, I get a call and say, listen, I, you know, what's happening in the world is crazy. We, I, I need, we need to do something. I really want to be good with God. Let's have Bible studies. I was excited. All right. Yeah, that's a good thing. Fortunately, I, I really never heard from him again. And, you know, it's been a year already. So notice, if we get used to things. Here's another one. The majority of churchgoers, 56%, say that they pray for opportunities to share their faith, but in the last month, less than 10% had a conversation about the Lord with anyone, and only 8% of regular churchgoers believe that sharing their faith is very important. We were talking a little bit about that in our Sabbath school, right? But notice, friends, 56% say they're looking for opportunities from them. Only 10% actually talk about Jesus to other ones, and only 8% think it's important. We talked about the importance of what we need to do in order to grow spiritually, right? We need to uh, obviously have a, a, a study the Word of God every day, eat our spiritual bread. We need to have a, a prayer life, conversation with God every day. And also we need the exercise, we need to share the gospel with somebody else. And if we're not doing that, we are not going to grow spiritually. If we're not doing that, we're going to be complacent. And these, these, these statistics tell it like it is, only 8%. I wonder how, how you feel about that. Those of you here, those of you watching, how many of you feel that sharing your faith is very important for your spiritual growth? Only 8%? No wonder Jesus has a problem with the last church. One final one. In a recent survey of 2,500 congregations, more than half of the members said that they did not believe their church was spiritually vital. 2,500 congregations, less than half of them believe that church is important. And I believe, friends, that our current situation has made things worse. Well, because, you know, obviously because of the current situation, most people still are not coming to church. And, you know, well, you know, we, we were taking advantage of technology. Aren't we thankful for technology? I tell you, if it wasn't for technology, if this would have happened, I don't know, 30 years ago, we would be, you know, I don't know where we would be. But, you know, we, we're taking advantage of technology. We're thankful for that. Um, Zoom, you know, Zoom existed before COVID. I, I, I use Zoom maybe once in a while on certain webinars, that kind of thing. But, but you know, I'm forced to get very familiar with it after, after COVID-19. Of course, we here at Nashville First always live stream, so that was nothing new for us. But many churches in our conference, I'm just talking about what I know from my colleagues, many churches in our conference, they dabbled nothing in technology. They did not want to get into technology. It was like, ooh, no, get away from me. But of course, after, you know, after COVID, well, they were forced to that, and so we're thankful for that. But I think that the negative side effect of this is that now we've gotten used to the technology, and now we may not, we may not see attending church as that important anymore. 
Well, after all, you know, it's much more convenient if I just get up in the morning and, and, and just sit down and watch, you know, the, 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 the programming online. It's much more convenient. And then I have so much to choose from. You know, I could change the channel if I don't like what the pastor is saying. You see? And again, we've become used to this, that maybe church is not that important anymore. Friends, I believe church is important. And if you don't think it is important, let me share with you uh, a statement made by Mrs. White in the book, Act of the Apostles, uh, page 122, Acts of the Apostles, page 122. Notice what she says. Many have an idea that they are responsible to Christ alone for their light and experience, independent of his recognized followers on earth. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and his heart is touched with their woe. He has all power, both in heaven and on earth. But he respects the means that he has ordained for the enlightenment of and the salvation of men. He directs sinners to the church, which he has made a channel of light to the world. What is the means that he respects, that he has ordained for the salvation of men? He brings them to church. Now, we've gotten used to uh, this situation where, you know, church is not important for some. Where is God going to take him now? I mean, I've shared this with you before. This happened to me uh, um, uh, in my previous district several times where people or families came to the church because they had been convicted to study God's word and they studied God's word on their own and they discovered these truths that we hold so dear and then they said, we need to find a church that teaches these things and they walked through the Adventist church and I baptized some of them. And I believe God is still doing that. But if the church is a place where God ordained to that and there's no church to go to, what's going to happen to them? Where are they going to go? Now, some of you will say, but pastor, the church is not the building. The church is us. And that would be absolutely true. We are the church. And I think that if, eight, if only 8% of the church, or more than 8% of the church members thought that witnessing was important, that would be a different story. We would be doing our work outside. But since that's not the case, usually it's the church where it happens. And where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? L- let's face it, friends. I, I, in, my, in my years as pastor, one thing that I have found and you know, we've read statistics, I've shared these with you before, that a very small percentage of members of any given church actually are feeding themselves spiritually every day, having a devotional time, all those things. It's a small percentage. Most, most people, most members, will get their spiritual nourishment once a week when they come to church on Sabbath. And that is if they come every Sabbath. That's when they get their spiritual nourishment. That's where it happens. But if they're not coming to church now, where is the spiritual nourishment taking place? 
Now you may say, Pastor, you're assuming that they're not doing it somewhere else, and that's true. There may be some that say, well, you know, let me do something else. But think about it. If these statistics are true, and I believe they're true because it's the message that Jesus has for Laodicea, it tells us that those that were even getting their spiritual nourishment on Sabbath, they're not being fed at all. Now, I think that, I hope anyway, that by, by now, I've, I've been in this church for two and a half years, and uh, I think that at least one thing that you have learned about me is that I'm a straight shooter. I will tell you like it is, and, and, and I'm going to sidestep here by, by saying that what I'm about to say is my opinion. My opinion. When we talk about those that come to church or don't, those that don't come to church and the reason for it, I think it's important that we stay away from the rhetoric as, as to whether people, some people have faith and some people don't. Because, in my opinion, that is just feeding the, the, the polarization in our church. To say, well, you know, that person's not coming because they don't have faith, or this person is, is coming because they don't care. You know, that stuff is going on, and that should not go on. Okay? But, but, but let's think about this carefully. I had a conversation with somebody this week about this very thing. When we look around what's happening with this situation that we're currently in with COVID-19, I think that most of us can probably safely come to the conclusion that COVID-19 is not going to go away. It's not going to go away. We see this, you know, taking different strands and variations. Uh, you know, vaccines are available and everything. But if, if you think about it, this is just going to become like, like all the other flu uh, uh, epidemics out there. That, you know, every year it's out there. You know, every year there's a new strain and you need a new vaccine and all those things. That, that's just the way things happen. And, and, and I feel as I look at what's happening, COVID-19 is not going to go away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be here to stay. And if that's the case, and again, I want to be, I don't, I want to be very um, sensitive to, to everybody here. There are people today that are not coming to church because they have a valid reason. They have uh, comorbidities, you know, because of medical history. Uh, uh, they, they're doing what's right for them because of uh, the medical history and the risks that are out there. Okay? We have to make sure, we, we have to understand that that is happening. We cannot just judge everybody and put them under the same umbrella. There are those that are like that. But friends, I know that it's not everyone. Everyone not coming to church is not for that reason. It's because they've gotten used to it. And I think that, friends, understanding that, that this may not go away, at some point we are going to have to grapple with the situation, with the issue is what church is going to mean for us from here on? Where is church going to fit in my spiritual growth? You're going to have to grapple with that situation at, at some point, hopefully sooner than later. Because if we feel, well, I, I won't go to church until COVID-19 is over, and if COVID-19 is, is not over, are you ever going to come back? Is church going to be something of the past? And friends, I believe, friends, quite with, with, with all my heart, that I don't think that's God's plan for us. It's not, plan, it's not His plan for us. Especially as I read what, what Mrs. White says, how important the church is. 
Is Christianity complacent? I think so, friends. Absolutely. And these findings, these findings, friends, can certainly be applied to Adventism. Can they be applied to Nashville first? I'll let you decide that, but if, if this applies to you. But notice, um, Mrs. White says in the book, in the first volume of uh, Selected Messages, page 357, the message to the Laodicean church is applicable to our condition. How plainly is pictured the position of those who, who um, think they have all the truth, who take pride in their knowledge of the word of God, while its sanctifying power has been felt in their lives. The fervor of love of, of, of the love of God is wanting in their hearts. But it is this fervor of love that makes God's people the light of the world. Notice again, the message to the Laodicean church is, is applicable to who? To us. She says, to us, we have been drinking of the poison of complacency. That's the title of our message. And complacency nauseates God. He says it in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty stern. But you say, Pastor, well, you know, we are the remnant. We have the truth for this time. Our church is growing. But you know, the greatest problem with the poison of complacency is that we think we have everything we need. That we need nothing. But we can't fool God. God knows our true condition. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Notice, friends, that Jesus has no problem. It doesn't mention that here. He has no problem with the doctrines of the church. He doesn't have a problem with the truths that we proclaim, because they are his truth. What he has a problem with is with a deep, our deep-seated attitude. The Laodicean church is half-hearted and content. The, the Laodicean church is half-hearted about its good works and content with this religious experience that seems to be spiritual, but it's vitally Christless. It is us. Because it is us, Jesus says that he will vomit us out of his mouth. Really, in, 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 the, in the way that it reads in the Greek is that he is about to vomit us out of his mouth, which indicates that there's still some, some hope. There's still some time. There's still an opportunity to repent. And so he shares a problem. He's, he, he's very clear with what the problem is with the church of Laodicea. He's very clear with what the problem he thinks we have today then he provides a solution. Aren't you glad that he, he always has a solution? Amen. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. I think it was Vic that you said earlier in the Sabbath school, we need to... Fall in love again with Christ. And I think that speaks truly to our condition. 
But notice the fact that, that we are told to buy suggests that we have something to give in exchange for what we receive. As you look at what Jesus says here, he's really talking about the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ that we can buy without money. Because it is by grace through faith in him. It is free. Huh? The only thing that God wants in, re- in, in return, right? He, 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 he's willing to give us the righteousness of Christ. What he wants in return is our total surrender to him. Which is the, the implication is that if, if this is what Jesus is saying to us today, the implication is that we're not surrendered to him. That we have not yet surrendered and perhaps we truly do not have an intimate relationship with him. To be clothed in white garments is to be rescued from the humiliating position of our nakedness and the shame of our sin. The white garments are a result of the righteousness of Christ placed in our account. That is righteousness by faith. And so friends, what we we truly need is a truly converted experience. That's the solution. But we can't see that. And so Jesus offers his eye salve to anoint our eyes that we, may be, that we may see and understand our true spiritual condition. This true, the spiritual condition uh, is only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I believe that the Holy Spirit is our greatest need today. We need him. And Mrs. White mentions this. She says in... This is from the Home Missionary from uh, November 1890. You've heard this one before. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all needs. We talked about that at the beginning of the year. We must have the holy unction from God, the baptism of the Spirit. So that revival that we, that we so desperately need is only possible when we have the unction of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one from the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald. February of 1892, she said that the Spirit of God, as it comes into the heart by faith, is the beginning of the life eternal. What promise is less fulfilled in the church than that of the endowment of the Holy Spirit? Here is our greatest need. That's what she says. The Holy Spirit. Now, friends, I know that this is a hard topic. People don't by nature, we don't want to be called out. By nature, we don't want to be chastened. And yet, God does it all the time. Jesus says in, in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. These words are coming from Jesus that are hard words that are coming from Jesus because he loves you. In fact, Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.32 that we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God wants to save us. And if, and if to save us once in a while he has to chasten you and call you out, then let him do it. We do it to our kids, don't we? But you see, no matter what Jesus does or no matter what he says, the choice is still ours. We have to make the choice. We can choose to be lukewarm. Or we can, we can choose to, to drink of the poison of complacency. Or we can choose to, to heed his calling. We can choose to heed his invitation. 
Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In the messages of the seven churches, you'll find as you read them that there are two doors that are mentioned. Two doors. To the, door, uh, to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says in, in Revelation 3.8, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. And to the church of Laodicea, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So there's two doors. One in heaven that nobody can shut, right? It's already open. The other one on earth still needing to be opened. We, are, we can see Jesus' feeling about us, about the end of time. He's out, outside. He's outside of the church, politely knocking and inviting individuals to, to let, allow him in and, and to leave their complacent state in order to have fellowship with him. Don't miss the implication of verse 20. What he's saying is that the last day church is busy doing all kinds of things and he's still outside trying to come in. We have left them out. Oh yeah, we got the truth. We, all kind, we got all kinds of truth. I wonder who's at the door. Hey, let me go on and talk to my friends here. Reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, as he's finishing the, the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of the, the last days, he says in, in, in verse 22 and 23, Matthew 7, 22 and 23, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, have done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Could it be that Jesus doesn't know them because he's been knocking at the door of their hearts and they haven't opened up for him. Who's Jesus talking to in, the, in this passage? He's talking to the church. He's talking to people who, quote unquote, are doing things for him in his name, but have left them outside. They've com become complacent. Could that be us this morning? In his commentary, Richard Trench says that every man is lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. He has a mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. But if he refuses, he is blindly at strife with his own blessedness, a miserable conqueror. You know, this image of Jesus coming in and dining with us and he and, and, we, and us with him is really a powerful one. In, in the Near East, this, this image of sharing a common meal was, uh, was, uh, uh, indicates a forming of a, of a strong bond of affection and companionship and intimacy. And I find it interesting that, friends, that um, to this point, if you, again, reading the, the, the whole letter, of the church of Laodicea, it was addressed as, to the church as a whole. Now it changes. Because now he says, if anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. 
which tells us, friends, that, that no matter what the church does, you know, the entire church as a whole may not heed the warning, but some may still do it individually. Even if the entire church turns their back on God, you may still respond. Jesus is standing at the door, before the door of your heart, asking, asking to come in for a meal of mutual and intimate love. He does not break in. He could break in, but he respects our freedom. He respects our choice. The lukewarm and half-hearted Laodiceans who have been drinking of the, of the poison of complacency must make their own choice. Because, friends, let's face it, pretty soon it'll be too late to make that choice. I started this message by sharing the story of, uh, of Charles Wendell and his experience and ended by saying how funny it is and perhaps tragic that people don't take warnings seriously. And the events in our world, and especially in the last year, are a warning. Those lights are going off, the siren, and we've been playing church for far too long. Jesus' message to the church of our time proves it. We are lukewarm. We have been drinking of the, of the poison of complacency, and it's time to stop. It's time to be truly converted. To surrender our lives to Christ. For it is only that way that the white garments of his righteousness will cover our nakedness. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to seek the Holy Spirit more than we ever have before. For it is he will help us see our true spiritual condition. We need to let Jesus come into our hearts and to our lives. And, and, and that his presence will transform us. And so we can have that intimate relationship with him that he so, so much longs for. We need a relationship that will allow us not to become complacent, but that will motivate us to give the best to Jesus because he gave the best, God, God gave the best, the best to save us. And I wonder if you long for that intimate relationship. How many of you long for that intimate relationship? Those of you home, are you longing for that intimate relationship? Jesus is longing for the same. And so today, Jesus is presenting the solution. He showed us the reality of our spiritual condition. Maybe we had ignored it. But today, we can, can acknowledge our, 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 the, the deficiencies that we have and say, you know, I'm going to allow Jesus to change me. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to open the door of my heart and let him in. And I'm not going to drink of this poison anymore. Let us become hot and zealous for the kingdom of God, so that he will come soon. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.